You're listening to A Prophet, a collaboration between Sakhlain and Al-Hujja Islamic Seminary. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming our patron by donating at sakhlain.org support. Now, there is one very important discussion over here as we discuss the Battle of Bed. 70 pagans were killed, but 70 were also taken as prisoners of war, as captives. We see the humane treatment of captives in Islam at the Battle of Badr and how the Prophet gave a command to his companions to be gentle with the captives. So 70 of them were taken as captives. One of those captives, his name is Abu Aziz ibn Umair ibn Hashim. He's the brother of Mus'ab ibn Umair. He was one of the Usara, one of the captives. And he was actually one of the people who carried the banner at war for the Quraysh. So he was an important person. You know what he used to say after he was freed? He used to say, Kuntu asiran. I was a captive held by a group of the Ansar, the companions of the Prophet. He says, this is how they treated me. Whenever they wanted to have dinner, lunch, they would give me the bread. And at the time, bread was scarce. They would give me the bread to eat. And they would eat just... They would satisfy themselves by eating dates, but they would give me the bread. And they would make sure that I eat before them. In another narration, these captives would say, they would put us on the camels or the horses and they would walk. SubhanAllah, look at the treatment. And he says why? Because this was the command that the Prophet issued to the companions to treat the prisoners of war very well. The Prophet told them, treat them like they're your guests. We don't see that the Muslims tortured them like usually it happens or they gave them very bad treatment. No, they were taken as captives, yes, but they were treated very humanely. Now that night of Badr before the Prophet left, that first night when they had the captives, one of the captives was Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet. Remember, the Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, came with Quraysh to bed and he was on the pagan side. So they captured him. And because he was captured, he was handcuffed basically. He was tied, his hands were tied. Because he was in that state of being handcuffed, he would, you know, groan. Maybe he was not too comfortable. So throughout the night, he was groaning. Assalamu alaikum. No one was torturing him, but he was just uncomfortable. You know, why am I handcuffed? The Prophet that night couldn't sleep. He would turn, he couldn't sleep. And the companions realized the Prophet, something's disturbing him. He can't sleep. So they approached the Prophet, they told him, Ya Rasulullah, what's the matter? Why can't you sleep? He told them, his groaning is not allowing me to sleep. Look at the rahmah of the Prophet 
if he's in pain or if he's in discomfort, I'm in discomfort. I can't sleep. So basically, they told the Prophet then, do you give us permission to untie him? The Prophet said, yes, please go and untie him. Now, when they went to untie him, he was still a captive. He was told, Abbas, you can buy your way out of captivity because the captives, if they worked or they could provide a sum of money, ransom, they would be freed by the Muslims. So a number of them who had money, they would pay the amount that was required, they would be freed. Some of them who let's say didn't have money, do you know what they had to do in order to be freed? The people of Mecca, not all of them, but some of them were literate. They knew how to read and write. Whereas the Ansar, the people in Medina did not know how to read and write. So the Muslims told them, look, you want to be freed? Teach 10 Muslims to read and write. Once you teach 10 Muslims literacy to read and write, then you'll be freed. So that was, that was one way of buying your you know, way out of captivity and buying your freedom. Abbas had some money. So basically what happened is they went up to him. They're like, look, you've got money. Why don't you buy yourself out of captivity? He told them, look, I'm really a Muslim. I believe in Islam and the Prophet The Prophet according to this hadith, he told him, God knows whether you're truthful or not. If you're truthful that you really were a Muslim, but you pretended to be a pagan, but in reality you were a Muslim, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you your reward. But remember, we have an obligation. You came with the pagans, so from the outside we have to apply the rule of captivity to you. You may be truthful, but we can't make an exception. So you have to buy your way out. <clears throat> he tell, told the Prophet but I don't have any money. This was Abbas. It's Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet. He told him, but I don't have any money. To say he stayed non-Muslim up until... Well he's saying over here that I was secretly a Muslim but the reason why I did not openly state that is because I feared the repercussions from Quraysh but he and he was asked okay why did you come to war? He said they forced me, I had no choice but to come to war but inside I was a Muslim. But he declared after eight years, ten years, nine years. No, 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 not, not, not after eight years. They took him to Medina and he became a Muslim. Oh, okay. See, Abbas, he's saying I was a Muslim to begin with. Abbas is saying I am a Muslim to begin with. So no need for me to even like declare I, I'm a Muslim, but they forced me to come to this battle. The Prophet said, you know, Allah knows whether you're truthful or not. If you're truthful, may Allah reward you, but we still have to play by the rules, right? So you still have to buy, buy your way out of captivity. So if we accept these claims by uh, Al-Abbas and his servant, as we shall see later, he also makes a claim. He was a Muslim from the beginning, but it was at the time of the conquest of Mecca when he declared it to everyone. Because he wanted, you know, he did have a status, an important status in the city of, uh, of Mecca. And he did not want to lose that status. So later on he declared it. 
But he says that I was Muslim, you know, from, from the first day, just like Abu Talib, you know how he was a Muslim? He says I was also a Muslim, yes. And I have a question about the war spoils. Yes. Did any of the Jews get war spoils that didn't attend the war? Did any of them receive war spoils? Or only people that attended the war? No, only the people who attended the war. Yes, those who got killed, the 9 or 14, their share was given to their families. But those who did not participate in the battle did not get any spoils of war. But there was Jews uh, in the battle, right? Well, there was one Jewish person. Well, actually, I think that was in Uhud. Maybe there, was, there were one or two who had converted to Islam, yes. Al-Mukhayriqi, I think at the battle of Uhud, he, as we shall see later, he was a Jewish rabbi and scholar. He converted to Islam and he defended the Muslims and he got killed in the battle, yes. So some, some Jews did convert and they did participate. Now interestingly, we have a book mentioned in the book of Ikhtisas from Imam Al-Kadhim in which he elaborates on what happened here. So the Prophet told him, Abbas, you know, you've got money, buy your way out of captivity. So that way we're, we're you know, playing by the rules because the Quran does mention that. It's called the fida. If you pay money, you can, or someone sponsors you, they pay money, they'll free you. Al-Abbas said to the Prophet, I don't have money. Jibra'il came down on the Prophet and he told the Prophet that Abbas does have money and he has buried sacks of gold in his house and he informed his wife Umm al-Fadl and she knows exactly where it is. So Jibra'il tells the Prophet, the Prophet tells him, Abbas, in that corner of your house, you've buried lots of gold and your wife Umm al-Fadl knows about this. When Abbas hears this, he freezes. He says, I swear by God, no one knew about this except me and my wife. So the fact that you know about it is telling me that Allah revealed that to you. He's like, okay, you know, fine, we'll, <laughs> we'll bring that. And then it has, it has been mentioned that the Holy Prophet he, the Prophet, you know, mentioned this to Abbas and then he sent Abbas to go and get that money. Abbas said to Imam Ali السلام, that you've impoverished me, meaning the money that I have kept and stored, now you're taking from me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala heard this, so he revealed a verse in the Quran in which it states, if Allah knows anything good in your hearts, He will give you better than that which has been taken away from you. So what if you've given that money in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to poor Muslims. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant you much more than that. Now how much did they have to pay? Those who could afford, like they had a lot of money, they had to pay 4,000 silver coins to be freed. 4,000 dirhams. A dirham is about three and a half grams of silver. What's the current price of silver? Half a dollar? 50 cents. So if you have 4,000 coins times 3.5, what do you get? It's like 13, 14,000. So that's about 14,000 grams. And if we assume the price of each gram is half a dollar, that's about $7,000. So those who were rich, they had to pay 7,000. Those who weren't as rich, they had to pay 3,000. Then some had to pay 2,000 and others had to pay 1,000. Some of them absolutely had no money. Now Abbas, he had money, but he withheld that. 
Allah exposed him. But some really did not have the money. So the Prophet told them, you know, do you know how to read and write? If they knew, they would have to, they would have, they had to educate 10 Muslims and teach them literacy. Some of them didn't know how to do anything. I don't know how to teach. I don't have any money. The Prophet said, okay, we free you. See how generous the Prophet was? You have money, give them money. You don't go. We free you in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of those people was Abu Izza al-Jamhi. He had a lot of girls. He was poor, broke, didn't have any money. And he told the Prophet The Prophet said, I'll release you on one condition. Make an oath you'll not fight us. Remember the Prophet didn't force them to become Muslim. Many of those captives went back to Mecca, freed them. Many, some of them did become Muslim willingly, but many of them didn't. The Prophet told him, I'll release you, but on one condition. Promise you will not conspire against us Muslims. Don't mobilize anyone against us, don't fight us. Do you agree? He said, I agree, the Prophet released him. Now amongst those people whom the Prophet accepted their ransom was Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'ah. Do you know who Abu al-As was? He was the son-in-law of the Prophet. The Prophet's eldest daughter was Zainab. Now there's a disagreement among scholar, scholars whether she was his biological daughter, as many state, or she was his stepdaughter. The Prophet had a son, Al-Qasim. So Al-Qasim, assuming Zainab was the biological daughter of the Prophet, Al-Qasim was older than her and she was born before the religion of Islam to the Prophet and Lady Khadija Some scholars believe she was the biological daughter, others believe she was the stepdaughter. In any case, she was married to a man by the name of Abu al-As. Abu al-As was amongst who? The captives because Abu al-As was a pagan. And he came with Quraysh to fight the Prophet So basically, he was held as a captive. The, da the, the daughter of the Prophet or the stepdaughter, meaning his wife Zainab, she sent the money for his ransom and she asked the Muslims to free him because he's her husband and she wanted him to be freed. So what she sent was a necklace. This necklace was brought to the Prophet Now where was Zainab at this time? Mecca. She was in Mecca because she was living with her husband. Her husband refused to, you know, uh, embrace Islam at that point and he kept his wife with him. The Prophet could not keep. Zainab was, believe, was a believer in the Prophet, but she had no choice but to stay with her husband. That was something enforced on her. So when she heard that the pagans lost the battle, her husband Abu al-As has been taken as a captive. She sent a necklace to be the ransom to buy him from captivity. Because in the end he's her husband. Do you know what necklace she sent? This necklace was sent to the Muslims. It was presented before the Prophet The Prophet saw it and he recognized that this is the necklace that Lady Khadija gave Zainab as a gift on her wedding night. So when the Prophet saw the necklace and he remembered Khadija, he broke into tears. He started crying when he remembered his beloved wife Khadija. So the Prophet looked at the Muslims, even though he's the commander, 
He can do whatever he sees fit. He looked at the Muslims, he told them, is it okay with you if we free her husband? And I sent back the necklace to my daughter, is that okay with you? Because remember, the ransom money would go to who? To the Muslims, it would be divided amongst them. So they owned it, they were the rightful owners of that ransom money. So the Prophet sought their permission. He told them, I ask for permission, is it okay with you if we free him and we don't take the ransom money, we send back the necklace to my daughter or stepdaughter, is that okay with you? They told him, Ya Rasulullah, you are our leader, we sacrifice our life for you, yes. We accept and there's absolutely no problem with that. Now the Prophet accepted, but the Prophet put a condition on him. He told him, Abu al-As, you go back to Mecca, my daughter is coming to Medina, you're, you're separated from her. Because remember he was a pagan, she was a Muslim, she believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, she believed in the Prophet, he had compelled her to stay in Mecca, the Prophet said, I'll release you, but on one condition, that we take Mecca, we're going to send someone to Mecca and he's going to bring her to Medina and you'll be separated from her. Is that okay? He said, yes, I accept. Of course he's going to accept, I mean, you know, he doesn't want to stay as a captive. By the way, later on, the Prophet sent after Zainab and they took her from Mecca to Medina, Abu al-As honored his word. In the sixth year of the Hijrah, Abu al-As actually embraced the religion of Islam. In the seventh year, he migrated to Med Medina, he settled there. When Abu al-As became a Muslim, the Prophet told him, now you can go back to Zainab. Now that you've become a Muslim, you can go back to Zainab and be her husband. So there's a discussion among scholars. Did he just tell him go back to her or no? Because that previous marriage was nullified, they needed a new marriage contract. Some scholars said he just told her to go back. Ibn Abbas and others, they said no, it had to be done with a new marriage contract. So this is disputed in history. Whether there was a new marriage contract, which is most likely the case, or he just went back to her. So later on Abu al-As does embrace Islam and he joins uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi in Medina. So that wasn't a divorce Yeah, that wasn't a divorce. See in Islamic law, if, if the husband becomes an atheist, let's say, deflects from Islam, salamu alaykum. In that case, what happens? The marriage is automatically nullified. Yes, without a divorce. If there are two spouses, Muslims, and let's say the husband or the wife renounces the religion of Islam, they become atheists. They become pagans. That marriage no longer needs a divorce. Automatically it's broken. They're no longer husband and wife. By the way, this, this happened a while ago without giving specifics to protect privacy of people. A brother once contacted me in one community, not too long ago, and he told me, Sayyid, my wife has become an atheist and I'm no longer her husband. What do I do? I'm like, on what basis are you saying that? It's like she doesn't believe the Quran, Islam, God, nothing out the window. I'm like, look, before you make a judgment, let me see her, let me talk to her. Maybe she has misconceptions. You know, I can't just take your word for that. He's like, okay, I'll tell her to, you know, schedule an appointment and see her. So I, she came to the appointment and I saw her 
And yes, she did have a lot of issues with the Quran, with the religion of Islam, a lot of misconceptions. But then basically, for about an hour and a half, I walked her through all the misconceptions she had. She was clear. So I called him, I told him, look, you can't just say my wife is an atheist, I'm no longer her husband. You know, give her a chance, she's got concerns, have a scholar talk to her, and then if she's stubborn and insisting, then you can make that, you know, assessment and evaluation. But it's not right for you to make that evaluation now. So I told him, no, don't worry, you're not separated, she's a Muslim. She just had a lot of issues and she's heard a lot of misconceptions. She's got non-Muslim friends who put these, you know, misconceptions in her mind. The media has also influenced her. And, you know, in an hour and a half, we were able to resolve most of them, alhamdulillah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa you know, accepted his Islam later on when he became a Muslim and he allowed him to go back to his daughter or stepdaughter Zainab. By the way, speaking of this necklace incident, Ibn Abi al-Hadid makes a powerful point over here. Ibn Abi al-Hadid is a Mu'tazili Sunni scholar who is known for his commentary on Nahj al-Balagha. He said, he says, I mentioned this incident of Zainab's necklace before my teacher Abu Ja'far Basri Al-Alawi. He was one of his Sunni scholars and teachers. He says, I mentioned this to him. I told him, was it not appropriate for Abu Bakr and the other caliphs? When Fatima came with her case for Fadak, for them to do the same? Just like the Prophet returned the necklace to his daughter and he did not take it as a ransom, why couldn't Abu Bakr give the land of Fadak to Fatima? Why didn't he follow the Sunnah of the Prophet in this particular incident? He's like, my teacher thought for a moment, he's like, well there's a difference here. The Prophet has authority, he can do something like that. Whereas Abu Bakr doesn't have authority, he has to play by the rules. He's like, look, I'm not telling you that he should issue an executive order that this land should go to Fatima and all of you Muslims, you have no right to it. I'm not suggesting that. Why couldn't he say what the Prophet said? If Abu Bakr would have gotten up on the pulpit, oh Muslims, Fadak belongs to all of us, to all the Muslims, fine. Assuming, well, of course, we don't, we don't accept that. It belonged to Fatima. But assuming it did belong to the Muslims, couldn't Abu Bakr get up and say, Oh, my companions, oh, my people, this belongs to you, but this is the daughter of Rasulullah. And she's asking for it. Let's, let's give this land to her. Do you think a single person would have objected? Not a single person would have objected. So, why didn't he do that? He said, My, my teacher was really disturbed when I brought this point. I told him here the Prophet when his daughter sent the necklace, a valuable necklace, to have her husband freed, Rasulullah was not comfortable taking that from his daughter. And he asked the Muslims, is it okay with you if we send it back to her? Why didn't you do the same thing to Fatima and honor her the way the Prophet honored Zainab? He's like, my teacher had no response. He just lowered his head and couldn't say anything. So, you know, it's, it's very interesting the conversation that Ibn Abi al-Hadid has with his teacher. Or, 
maybe it was the other way around where Ibn Abil Hadid he brings this you know objection to his teacher, it's one of, one of them said it and then his teacher gave him you know this response that why couldn't Abu Bakr do the same thing, but really if those companions followed the sunnah of the Prophet and they know the Prophet did this after the bed, why couldn't they do this to Fatima? Assuming Abu Bakr was right, the Prophet doesn't leave inheritance, the land did not belong to Fatima, it belonged to the Muslims. We have the daughter of the Prophet asking for her right, she says I want this land now, couldn't you ask the Muslims, seek their permission and if they accept it to give it to her? So what does that tell you? Now, the Prophet when it comes to the captives, he strictly prohibited the Muslims from torturing or mutilating any of the captives. Ibn Ishaq narrates that one of the Sahaba, one of the companions, he looked at one of the captives, his name was Suhail ibn Amr, he was being freed and sent back to Mecca. Basically the Meccans, they purchased him, they gave the ransom and he was now being freed so he could go back to Mecca. One of the companions said, Ya Rasulullah, allow me to pluck out his, his tongue, let me cut his tongue because I know the minute he goes to Mecca, he's going to start trashing us and slandering us, <laughs> right? So let me save ourselves this big headache, let me just cut his tongue and we'll be sure that he's not going to attack us verbally. The Prophet says, no, I will not mutilate him because if I do that to him, God will make my body mutilated even though I'm a Prophet. Look at the words of the Prophet, subhanAllah. He says, if I the Prophet approve of this, Allah will seek revenge from me and he'll have my body mutilated. So we see the Prophet, he prohibited his companions from any type of torture.